Legend has it that there was a man lost in the desert and dying of thirst who stumbled, as it will, upon a ramshackle, weather-beaten old cabin. And looking around that cabin, he found some shade and he sat down there to contemplate his life, which... If he didn't find something to drink, wasn't going to be that much longer. As he sitting there and glancing around, he noticed about 15 feet away from him an old water pump. So he hauled himself up and staggered over to the pump and grabbed the hold of the handle and began to pump it. But all it did was squeak and groan and nothing came out. So devastated, he staggered back to his small spot in the shade and began to sat down, sit down again. And just as he was doing so, he noticed over under a small mesquite tree a, a jug laying there on its side in the dust. So he crawled over to it and he grabbed a hold of that jug and he kind of wiped the side of it a little. And there was a, a note, inscription on the side of the jug. And he said, you have to prime the pump with all the water in this jug, my friend. P.S. Be sure you fill the jug again before you leave. Well, the man pried the cork out of the jug and amazingly it was filled with water. Warm, tepid, brackish kind of water, but water nonetheless. Now he was faced with incredible quandary. What if that note on the side of the jug were nothing but a cruel joke played on him by some stranger unseen years before? What is he going to do? There in the jug lies water. He desperately needs water. But the message says that you pour it into the pump to prime it what to do. If it works, the prospects are for an abundance of cold, clear spring water that would more than meet his need. If it doesn't, he has squandered his last hope. Well, he decides to pour the water into the pump, and that's what he does. Grabbing a hold of the handle and vigorously pumping it up and down, and nothing happens. He continues to pump, squeaking, groaning. And then, lo, a trickle of water begins to come from the mouth of the pump. And the trickle turns into a stream. The stream turns into a flood and out gushes cold, clear, refreshing spring water. The man guzzles it down. He just drinks his fill. Then he fills the jug again and puts the cork back in it. And he adds his own little inscription onto the bottom of the jug. He writes, believe me, it really works. <laughs> but you have to give it all away before you can get anything back. And that little story brings us to the heart of our fourth core value that we want to look at this morning. Daring to minister by faith. We have repeatedly defined here core values as the deepest, most constant, most passionate beliefs and visible commitments that drive either an individual or an organization. And we have said that we have five of those core values that by God's grace will drive this ministry in the years to come. 
put them for you again on your handout and left you blanks so that we can work on this together. So our first core value is what? Talk to me. Devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Second value. Determination. Very good. Determination to obey the Bible. We are determined by God's grace to obey the Bible. Third, dedication to prayer. We are dedicated to the ministry of prayer. And that leads us to our fourth for this morning, and that is daring to minister by faith. Daring to minister by faith. You know, faith is the essence of the redeemed life. We were saved through faith, the Apostle Paul says, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. So we are saved through faith. We also live by faith. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, it says, for if we for we walk by faith and not by sight. So we are called to live a life of faith. Beyond that, we minister by faith. Galatians 6, 9 and 10. Paul writes, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. So then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And so we minister by faith. We are saved through faith. We walk by faith. We minister by faith. The Christian life is a faith enterprise from beginning to end. Now, what is faith? Maybe we should pause and talk about that just for a moment. What is faith? Now, immediately your minds are probably going to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1, right? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Well, that's a, that's a good verse, and that really helps us. It's actually not a formal definition of faith per se. It's actually a, a poetic description of faith. It's not talking about two components. It's, these are parallel thoughts that are being given to us here. And it's a description, really, of, of how faith operates, what faith does. Faith is a dynamic certainty about what God has promised. It is the conviction that what is future can as a can become real, can become can, can become true. It is it is the ability to look out and to imagine what could be and to see it as real. Not because there is any inherent power within our faith or within our ability to believe, it is, it is because of the power of the one in whom we place faith. So it's all about what God can do. And it's looking out and having confidence in what God can do and then acting upon it today, not waiting for it to happen. Now, like all of our previous core values, this fourth one also has a threefold expression. So we'll look at, look at it this morning together that way. Daring to minister by faith, Foothill Bible Church is committed to biblical ministry, visionary ministry, and strategic ministry. So I want to explore those with you this morning in the time that we have. So let's get after it that measures effectiveness according to God's word and God's promises, not human methods or successes. It measures things according to God's way of, of reckoning, not according to human methods of reckoning. How do you judge the success of a ministry? Open your Bible to John 17. 
This is a huge question. How do you judge the success of a ministry? Is it by the size of the crowd that accompanies it? Is it by the wealth of the operation? How much cash flow is going through the coffers? Is it by the popularity of the message? You know, one of the things that uh, you observe when pastors get together, one of, inevitably one of the first questions that gets asked, and people have their own cute way of asking this question, but frequently a question that's asked is, uh, how big is your church? That usually works its way into the conversation at a pastor's conference within the first two or three minutes of being introduced to somebody. How big is your church? We are prone to measure success in terms of, of what we can see and touch. But by all these measurements, size of the crowd, wealth of the operation, popularity of the message, by all of these measurements, the ministry of Jesus Christ would have been a colossal flop. Isn't that fascinating? Here in John 17, I want you your eyes to go to verse 4. And notice this is in Jesus' high priestly prayer, and he's, he's giving an account of his ministry to the Father. And notice what he says here, verse 4. He says, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. I have glorified you here on the earth, and I have accomplished what you have given me to do. How many people at the end of their life can say, I have accomplished all that was given to me to do by God? This is, without any question, a, a statement of certainty. Jesus is saying, everything that, was, that I was supposed to do, I did. I did. Yet, if his ministry is measured by the size of the crowd, uh, it was but a handful that followed him by this point. If it was measured by the wealth of the operation, it was pitiful. If it was measured by the popularity of the message, well, they're about to crucify him. That's how popular it is. So by all of those external measures of success, many of which frequently we find ourselves using to evaluate and measure the success of a ministry, Jesus' ministry is a huge failure. Yet he says, I've accomplished everything. Everything that you have given me to do. Well, what was it that the Father had sent him to do? Look here in verses 6 through 8. He summarizes it. He says, I manifested or made known your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you have sent me. What was it that Jesus was sent to do? It was to reveal the Father. In a nutshell, it was to reveal God the Father. It was to show people the Father. Philip says, show us the Father. And Jesus says, have you been so long with me, Philip, that you don't know that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? <coughs> Jesus' responsibility of his earthly ministry was to make God known. And he says, I've done it. I have made God known. And I have accomplished the means by which you can come into relationship with this God whom I have made known, or I'm about to do it anyway, on a cross at Calvary. I've done everything that I was sent to do. The Apostle Paul, at the end of his life, evaluates his ministry as well. Go with me over to... 2 Timothy, chapter 4, <coughs> and see what he has to say. He's speaking to Timothy. Here in 2 Timothy 4, he's at the end of his life. Shortly it will be taken from him by a Roman blade. 
And he writes here in 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 5, he says, But you, Timothy, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul looks back on his life, and he says, I have, I have done it. I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. I have finished the race. I have done all that was set before me. When he was redeemed on the Damascus Road, and he was there waiting for Ananias to come and to, to, to pray over him that he might receive the Holy Spirit, he is given a vision of what it is that he's supposed to do. And what was it? It was to take the gospel message to the Gentiles. It was to blow out the sides of the box that, were, that was constraining the message of Christ, and it was to take it to the Gentile nations. And the Apostle Paul says, Listen, for the last 30 years, I have given myself to that task. I have brought the gospel from one end of this empire to the other. I've finished. My ministry is a success. It is a success. A success not by human measurements, standards, but a success by God's measurement, standards. If we measure our ministerial success, beloved, or effectiveness based upon these typical human measures, which are, which are at best appearance-based, then we inevitably have to judge many, if not most, of God's prophets and spokesmen to be failures. We've been reading together over these last few weeks through the major prophets, right? We've read through Isaiah, we've read through Jeremiah, we've read through Ezekiel. Every single one of those prophets would have, by any external measurement of success, a failure in their ministries. They preached and they preached and they preached and the people had no interest in their message. They had no popularity whatsoever. No following They were mocked, they were ridiculed, they were shamefully treated. They were failures. Failures. And the amazing thing is, and we don't have time to look there, but if you go to the early chapters of each of those prophecies, you'll find out that actually they were not failures. They were incredible successes because they did exactly what God told them they would do, and the people responded exactly the way God said they would respond. You will keep preaching, they will refuse to listen. So why does God work like that? Why does God do things that so frequently contradict and conflict with the way we would view the world? Well, in Isaiah, let's go there, Isaiah 55, he kind of gives us a clue. So we'll look at that, Isaiah 55. Beginning in verse 8. He writes, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Now we know that from human experience to be true, right? God doesn't do things the way we would like them done many times. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty or void without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I have sent it. God is saying, I don't do things the way you do. I don't add up the, the, the columns in the same fashion that you do. I don't think like you do. You're to think my thoughts after me. I'm not to think your thoughts after you. 
And I send out my word. And what I send it out, it is not always readily apparent what it's doing. And so you may judge it to be a failure. You may judge it on the the external measurements and say, well, that, that gospel message had no effect on anybody. It was unsuccessful. And God says that is not true. My word never returns to me without accomplishing the very thing for which I sent it forth. Listen to how the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians... You can go ahead and turn there. 1 Corinthians 1 kind of addresses the same question. First Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 26... He says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many nobles. So he's saying, you're all nobodies. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not that he might nullify the things that are, so that no man should boast before God. So why does God not do things the way we would do them? The answer the Apostle Paul gives us is, so that we can't possibly take any credit for what it is that has been done. He, He works through the most foolish of people and the most foolish of messages to accomplish the eternal redemption and reconciliation of the world. So that there is only one possible person who can be receive glory and to whom success can be attributed, and that is to God himself. So that means when we do ministry here, we need God's stamp of approval, not man's. So how do we make this practical? Let me see if I can do it this way. By God's grace, we are committed to pursuing ministry that is either explicitly required or necessarily implied by the Scriptures. Explicitly required or necessarily implied by the Scriptures, regardless of its popularity or its observable successes. What do I mean by that? Well, how about this? How about going door to door in the city of Upland to present the gospel to people, most of whom slam the door in your face? At what point do you say, this is unsuccessful? Let's give it up. It is unsuccessful when God says you are no longer required to share the gospel with your neighbors. Okay? And so unless he adds a chapter to the Bible and retracts everything he said, then we are necessarily required to do this. Okay? It is implied by the Scripture. It doesn't say, thou must go door to door and knock, clearly. But it is a necessary implication of going into all the world and making disciples. Okay? So it doesn't really matter how many people pray to receive Jesus Christ on a doorstep. That's not the point. The success of the ministry is measured in God's eyes by God's means, not by human popularity or external measures of crowd or success in that fashion. Okay? So, and at the same time, when I say that we're going to do that, at the same time, we need to make sure and we need to pray for God's grace to make sure that we don't put his stamp of approval on something that is only our idea. Okay? We we have means and methods and ideas of ministry, we need to be careful in balance that we don't say God has required this. The question is, what is the Scripture explicitly require or necessarily imply? So my point is that the, the methods may change. We may experiment, clearly. And we need to be careful that we don't say God requires this and God doesn't require this. We need to be in the Scriptures, know what it is He requires, and then do those things regardless of whether they're popular or not. Okay? So that's what it means to have biblical ministry that measures effectiveness according to God's Word and God's promises, not human methods or successes. Secondly, 
daring to minister by faith, Foothill Bible Church is committed to visionary ministry. Visionary ministry that is not limited by human appraisals of risk or reward, but believing God to accomplish far more than we could ask or think. Not limited by human appraisals of risk and reward. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, he says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond anything you could ask or think? Do you believe that? So if we believe that, why is it that we are so frequently paralyzed and inactive when it comes to stepping out boldly for Christ? Why is that? The Bible is very, very explicit in commending those who dare to walk by faith, and it is extremely critical of those who refuse, those who flinch, those who turn back. The Bible has nothing but good things to say, commendations for those who dare to walk by faith, and those who flinch, it censures, condemns. Maybe an example. Go with me back to Numbers chapter 13. Numbers 13, beginning in verse 25. This is when Joshua sent, or excuse me, Moses sent spies into the land, right? Verse 25, And when they had returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Thus they told him and said, We went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, The people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are also living in the hill country, and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we shall surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. Now, if that doesn't sound like a human appraisal of risk and reward, I don't know what does. Caleb says, Let's go. And the rest of them say, Are you kidding me? Do you see the size of their front line? Those guys all weigh over 300 pounds. There's fortified cities. Yeah, the land's good, but there's not a chance. They'll cream us. They'll cream us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone in, excuse me, gone in spying it out, is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size, dropping down, and we became like grasshoppers in their sight. And the nation listened to whose report? And the result of which is that their bodies fell in the wilderness, didn't they? Why is this included for us in the scriptures? Is it merely a point of historical interest? Or is there a lesson to be learned about faith? Caleb says, I don't care how big they are. God is on our side. Off we go. Go with me to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is commonly called the Hall of Faith of the New Testament. 
I just want to look at a few verses out of chapter 11 here with you. Actually, what I want to do is look quickly at four individuals that the writer of the Hebrews brings forward as examples of what it means to walk by faith. Verse 4, Abel worshipped by faith. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. What separated Cain from, or Abel from Cain? It was his worship. By faith, Abel offered that which God wanted. Cain held back. Verse 5. By faith... Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Enoch walked by faith. Abel worshipped by faith. Enoch walked by faith. In the midst of a wicked generation that was soon to be swept off the face of the globe, but for a handful, here is a man who is walking a life of faith so faithful before God, that God raptures him before the judgment comes. Verse 7. Noah worked by faith. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. It had not yet rained, or certainly not in the kind of torrential downpour that was soon to sweep over the globe. And here is a man who spends over a 100 years of his life building a boat in his backyard. Now, by any measurement of risk and reward, pro and con, this is a foolish thing to do. Yet he is put forth here as a man who worked by faith. He dared to obey God regardless of what his neighbors said, regardless of the personal consequences that came to him. The last one is in verses 8 through 10. And that is Abraham, and he wagered by faith. Abraham wagered by faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was called obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Abraham had a good life in Ur the Chaldees. He came from a wealthy family. He had an inheritance locked in. And God told Abraham, get up and go and go to a land which I will show you. He doesn't tell him when he leaves where he's going to take him. He just says, you wager it all. You bet your inheritance that is secure against an inheritance that I'm going to give you on promise and you go. And Abraham went. By any external human measure, that's a dumb bet. Why do you give up that which you have, which is secure, for that which you don't even know what it will be? It's because your faith is a visionary faith. It's a faith that is not constrained by the measurements of human risk and return. Beloved, we are, we are way too enamored with pro and con lists, risk and reward evaluations. I spent years in the business world, and it's common there. You're going to make an investment, and you sit down, and you figure out your internal rate of return and how many years to pay it back, and, and on you go. And it's a risk-return, risk-reward kind of mathematical evaluation. That's how the business world operates. But that's not how the church operates. And even there in the business where the process itself has inherent flaws built into it. Built right into the process. It is impossible to accurately weigh the true risks and the true rewards. 
we do not know the future. Therefore, we are unable to accurately predict what the risks really are and what the returns or rewards really are. Their guesses, their assumptions. They say that a battle plan survives only until its first contact with the enemy. I can tell you in all the years I spent in banking that the financial projections generated by potential borrowers survive only until the loan is funded and then all of a sudden things don't come to pass anymore because nobody can see the future. Let's not be over-enamored with these kinds of things. The other inherent flaws, it leaves God out. If the church can be reduced to mathematical formulas, God is left out. I mean, walk around Jericho seven times? Are you sure? I mean, what, kind of, what kind of way to siege a city is that? Walk around it seven times. Aren't we supposed to build battering rams and siege towers and go after this thing? Walk around it seven times with the bandweenies in front? I mean, what, what kind of a military strategy is that? William Carey, great pioneer missionary to India, he said, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. By God's grace, we are sending Dennis and Don out this fall to assist in a church plant. This represents a, a new avenue of ministry for Foothill Bible Church. We've never done that before. And it's going to bring its own sets of challenges. It's exciting. It's sobering. It's scary. It's all of those things all rolled together. But if we are going to dare to minister by faith, it's got to be the first of many such activities. Many firsts in the ministry. God is going to call on us to trust Him in ways He's never called on us before. He's going to require of us sacrifice that He's never required of us before. He's going to require us to go places we've never been before. One of my kids used to say they don't like to go any place they've never been before. Whichever you think about that is a real problem. <laughs> now, somebody may legitimately ask, um, with all the possibilities before us, how do we know what to do? Where do we go? What do we do? I mean, do we just start going in every direction? Just, just be bold and daring and we'll go here, we'll go here, we'll go here, we'll go here. I mean, it's just... No. We need to be strategic about it. We need to be strategic about where we go and what we do. And that really leads us to our third expression of what it means to dare to minister by faith. Daring to minister by faith, Foothill Bible Church is committed to strategic ministry that identifies critical ministry priorities which require planning and active dependence upon God's provision to accomplish His purposes through our church. We can't do everything. We're not going to be able to meet every single need that's out there. We need to be strategic. We need to, to evaluate what are, what, is the, what are the gifts and callings of this fellowship. What are the explicit or necessarily implicit requirements of the Scriptures? What are our spiritual interests? And we kind of put that together with, you know, where is God leading us in His providence? And then in those areas, we will go forth. You're in Hebrews, I think, still. So then go a little bit to the right to James. I mean, James gives us some balance here. This, we need balance. James 4, verse 13, following. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there, engage in business, make a profit. 
Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor. It appears for a little while and vanishes away. You're like the steam above a cup of coffee. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. What is he talking about? To him who knows the providence of God and does not rely upon it, but proceeds off arrogantly and independently, to him it is sin. It is a sin to ignore the providence of God in your planning. Because it is by His providence that He is working out His eternal plan of redemption. So our planning, our strategic planning, needs to have a a healthy respect and appreciation for the providence of God. He is at work. And we must be, be willing and able to step back from it and see His work of providence. Well, this whole timing of this church plant, the return of Arden Kim from India, God has providentially been at work in this, in some cases, for almost two decades. We need to see that. We need to be willing to acknowledge that God is at work. We don't live in a, in a naturalistic closed box. Strategic planning. Visionary ministry. These, these, by the way, are not some business technique superimposed on the Scripture. The Apostle Paul was a strategic planner. Go back to the right to Romans chapter 1. I want to, just in a couple of minutes, try to demonstrate that to you. You know, the Apostle Paul didn't just go willy-nilly wherever he wanted. You know, I'll go here, I'll go over here. I mean, he had a strategy that he was carefully working out. You know, we kind of read through these early verses in chapter 1 of Romans because we want to get to the good stuff, right? Look at verse 9. It's writing here to the church at Rome. He says, For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. Always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. The Apostle Paul wants to go to Rome. For I long to see you in order that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, and each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. And I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you. Excuse me, come to you and have been prevented thus far, in order that I might obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. The Apostle Paul says, Listen, I've planned to come to Rome many times. I have a strategic plan, and it includes Rome. Because it is from Rome that the gospel message will go out to the rest of the empire, to the rest of the Gentile people that I cannot possibly go to myself. I am one man and only able to go so far. And so strategically, I'm going to go to certain key Roman cities and plant churches. And from there, the gospel message will ring out to the rest of the known world. That's his strategy. Go back to Acts 16. Acts 16, verse 6. They passed through Phrygia and Galatian region, and having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, and when they had come to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. Basically, they tried to go north and south in Turkey, and the Spirit of God shut them off. Now, it doesn't tell us how that happened, but he shut them off. He wouldn't let them go there, and he was driving them westward. So they came to Troas. Troas resides on the western coast of Turkey, right near Troy. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A certain man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Macedonia is the northern half of Greece, okay? 
So come to Greece and help us. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we, Luke joining him here, sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Therefore, putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the, next, uh, on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in this city for some days. Why did Paul pass the other cities by? If all he had to do was go to Macedonia, why didn't he just stop at the first Macedonian city and start planting a church? Why did he pass by these cities to go to Philippi? Well, the answer is right there in front of you. It is the leading city of the district of Macedonia because a church planted in Philippi will reach these other cities. Chapter 17, verse 1. And now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollyana, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jew. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus whom I am proclaimed to you is the Christ. Why did he travel through these other cities? Why Thessalonica? Because it is a strategic city. It is from Thessalonica that the gospel will reign and ring forth. You follow the book of Acts, you will see Paul leapfrogs all kinds of cities all the time because he is practicing a strategic ministry. He is going where it will have maximum impact. Does that mean there? People in these other cities don't need the gospel? And was the Apostle Paul just blowing them off and saying, well, sorry, you know, you people stay dead in your trespasses and sins. I'm going somewhere else. How does he say at the end of his life, I've, I've fought the good fight, I've kept the faith, I've, you know, done what was I was supposed to do. But wait a minute, Paul, you missed all these cities. So he had a strategic ministry. He knew if he is going to fulfill his commission of pushing the gospel to the ends of the empire, then there are certain key cities he has to go to. And he went there. And he spent a long time there. He spent three years in Ephesus. Three years in one city. And it says, out of Ephesus, the gospel went forth into all of Turkey, all of Asia Minor. Paul practiced strategic ministry. I try to wrap this up here with a little bit of an epilogue. How's that? We have intentionally included the word daring in this core value. Daring to minister by faith. I mean, why did, why did we do that? Why don't we just say um, we're committed to ministering by faith? Why do we include the word daring? Well, the answer is, is because daring rhymes with the other Ds. <laughs> I only said that because that's what you were thinking over there, wasn't it? Yeah, I know. It just happens to fit with the other Ds. The reason we included daring is because it really speaks about the essence of faith. We can have a lot of happy talk, a lot of pious conversation about ministering by faith, but unless we are... We are daring. We are doing something that corporately and personally stretches us to the point where the success can only be attributed by God. Then we're really not walking by faith. And so we include the word daring to minister by faith because it, it highlights that fact that this is a risk. It's a risk. We're going to take risks here. Big risks. We're going to go Beyond our resources. See, if we don't go beyond our resources, then there is no way that God gets the glory. If we can do it within our resources, then look at the good thing we have done. It is only that when we crawl out on the limb and begin to saw it off behind us that God receives the glory. For example, we will need to go beyond our resources monetarily, both personally and corporately. The question will be raised, how can we pay for this? The answer will be, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. If this is his will, he will take care of it. 
We will go beyond our resources emotionally. How can we minister to these? These people are so hard to love. I don't have anything for them. I don't feel anything towards them. God, help me to love. We're going to go beyond our resources physically. I'm too tired to help. I'm too busy to help. I'm too preoccupied to help. God, help me. Give me strength. We're going to go beyond our resources experientially. We've never done this before. Yep, that's right. We're going to go beyond ourselves organizationally. People are going to say, we don't have enough manpower to do this. Well, then pray to the Lord of the harvest to raise up workers for the harvest. huh? We're going to go beyond ourselves temperamentally. That's way out of my comfort zone. I can't do that. Are you kidding me? You want me to minister to the poor? I can't do that. That's, that's beyond my resources. Yep. And that's when God will really begin to move. Such a way that only he gets the glory. Beloved, if you, can, if you can do ministry out of your savings account, you're not walking by faith. It's when you require God to do something that's when faith begins. And that's scary. And that requires daring. And then at the end of the day, God gets the glory. Ministering by faith for us means biblical ministry that measures effectiveness according to God's word and God's promises. Ministering by faith means visionary ministry, not limited by human appraisals of risk and reward. Ministering by faith means strategic ministry that identifies priorities and employs long-term planning strategies to accomplish. It's not just throwing yourself off the temple. That is not what we're talking about. but it is extending us personally and corporately beyond anything we've ever done before. I guess my question for all of us is how daring are you? How daring are you? What are you willing to risk?